The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Today we're going to do another installment of Matthew 24. We've been doing installments in this series periodically. We want to look at the Olive Discourse, and particularly at verse 35 today, where Yeshua tells His disciples, heaven and earth will pass away. Let's look at uh, 34 and 35. Truly I say to you, who is the you there? All right, the disciples. He is talking, you're right, that's, an, that's the hermeneutical principle, audience relevance. He's talking to His disciples. The you is not you. This was written, this was spoken 2,000 years ago. He's talking to the people there. I say to you, this generation, the one he was talking to, will not pass away until all these things take place. Then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, Peter talked about this same idea in 2 Peter 3. He says this, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? So so the heavens are going to pass away. The earth and its works are going to be exposed. They're going to be dissolved. He says, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening to the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That sounds kind of descriptive there, doesn't it? So both Yeshua and Peter talk about heaven and earth passing away. Here's our question. What did they mean by this? Were they talking about a time to come when the earth will be just burned up with fire? A time when the whole earth will explode and life as we know it will end. Well, it looks like that, I mean, from those texts. And that is how most believers today view that passage. The earth's going to burn up, this is all going to be just dissolved. Think about what we've seen so far in Matthew 24. Yeshua taught that the destruction of Jerusalem, that's what he's talking about in 24, will be a time of unprecedented tribulation and a sign of his return. He says in verse 21 and 22, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. So the the, the Lord's going to cut those days of the tribulation short, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there's going to be tribulation, but He's going to cut the days short. Before that great holocaust, that would not be surpassed, before that occurred, Christians prayed for the Lord to return. Christians in the first century. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. That's a prayer for the return of the Lord. Revelation 22.20 He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Yeshua. Now, According to the way His coming is commonly understood today, this would mean that they'd be praying 
for an instantaneous fiery destruction of the whole earth that not only would far surpass the destruction of Jerusalem, it would wipe out all flesh on earth. Is that what they were praying for? See, the futurists today can't escape this ridiculous dilemma. In their view of the end, those first century saints would be waiting for the fall of Jerusalem, Holocaust, being assured that Yeshua, by Yeshua, that not all flesh would perish, while at the same time they'd be waiting, watching, and praying for Christ to come in a destruction that wipes out everybody. No flesh would be spared. The one destruction would vindicate the gospel faith, the other one would extinguish it from the earth. I doubt if the latter was what these prophets had in mind when they spoke of the coming age, an everlasting age wherein all families of the earth will be blessed. Here's what we have to understand, people. The Bible is not a history book about earth from its creation to its ultimate destruction. The Bible is about spiritual truths made known through physical things. For example, Genesis introduces us to spiritual death. Revelation tells us how death is conquered. The theme of the Bible is the redemption of mankind, not the history of earth. So we have to keep that in mind. Now, when I first came to see the truth that the Lord had returned in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem and that all prophecy had been fulfilled, my first objection was, and I remember it well, this means we're living in the new heavens and new earth right now. And my response to that was, yeah, right. If this is the new heavens and new earth, we got ripped off. I mean, that's just how I felt. Now, why did I feel that way? It was because I was looking for a physical fulfillment of 2 Peter 3 and Matthew 24, 35. I thought that those passages were speaking of physical events. I thought that because I was thinking like a 21st century American and not a 1st century Jew. I didn't understand apocalyptic language. But Yeshua's disciples and those living in the first century were very familiar with apocalyptic language. Remember that Yeshua had been talking about, remember what he's been talking about in Matthew 24. He's telling his disciples of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. That old covenant nation was going to pass away, he said, in that generation. This generation, he said. Remember, this whole chapter is an answer to their question They come to him and they ask him questions. This whole chapter is answering. The question is, when, Lord, are you going to return? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're asking him questions. When's this going to happen? John Brown wrote this in 1853. Okay, He writes this. Heaven and earth passing away, understood literally, is the dissolution of the present system of the universe. And the period when this is to take place is called the end of the world. Now watch what he says. But a person at all familiar with the phraseology of the Old Testament Scripture knows. That's what we've been talking about the last couple weeks. If you're familiar with the Bible, the Tanakh, the first three quarters of it, he said a person familiar with that, they know that the dissolution of the Mosaic economy and the establishment of the Christian is often spoken of as the removing of the old earth and heavens and the creation of a new earth and new heaven. So he said, oh, if you're just familiar with your Bible, 
You know what's going on here. He goes on to say, it appears then that the Scripture being the best interpreter of Scripture. We just talked about that. That's the analogy of faith. The Scripture interprets the Scripture. So we want to know what the Scripture means? Look through the Scripture. He, <coughs> excuse me. He says, we have in the Old Testament a key to the interpretation of the prophecies of the New. The same symbolism is found in both. And the imagery of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the other prophets helps us to understand the imagery of St. Matthew, St. Peter, St. John, as the dissolution of the material world is not necessary to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Neither is it necessary to the accomplishment of the predictions of the New Testament. This is not some guy writing this recently, okay? Like I said, this is in the 1800s he's writing this, all right? Listen, we talked about this. One of the fundamentals of hermeneutics is to ask, what did the passage mean to the people to whom it was written? Modern prophetic interpreters would tell you that these passages meant nothing to the people Yeshua spoke to. He's talking to his disciples. This generation, but not talking about you guys. This is for something thousands of years later. Don't worry about it. So we don't need to pay attention to this, Lord? God really intended this for somebody else, not the people he spoke to? How did they know that? What would give them that clue? And Because he, he said, I'm talking to you, and I'm telling you that this generation will pass away. Is that what the Bible teaches? What does God reveal about the timing of these events? Now, we saw in our last study of Matthew 24, verse 34, that Christ states specifically, truly I say to you, this generation, this one, the one we're in, the one I'm talking to, you guys, that refers to the time period and the people he was speaking to. The Bible is clear that Yeshua was warning his generation of impending judgment, and the judgment was coming upon their city, their temple, it was going to be wiped out, the temple was going to be destroyed, they were going to be murdered or deported to other countries. It was going to be the end of their life. He's warning this generation, the one he was in. Then he says this, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Now, let's, let's talk about this, okay? If you take heaven and earth as the literal heavens and earth, as most Christians today do, and you believe that Yeshua is talking about the destruction of earth as we know it, that's what they think. See, yet in the future is going to destroy everything. That causes a problem with what Yeshua said earlier in Matthew 24. So is he arguing with himself? Did he change his view? Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. Look at what Yeshua said earlier in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until that happens, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, the use of the terms law and prophets here indicates that what our Lord is speaking about in these verses is the whole of the Tanakh, what people call the Old Testament. All right? That's what the Jews call it, the Tanakh. Now, if you trace those terms through your Bible, law and prophets, you'll find that whenever this expression is used, it includes the entirety of the Tanakh. All right, so the Lord's saying, I've not come to abolish the Tanakh, all the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Now, the word iota here, 
I guess the best way to describe an iota would be it looks like an apostrophe, okay? Like a comma, basically. In the writings, you'd see this, and it's not a comma. It's not an apostrophe because they didn't use those, okay? But it was one of their letters, all right? Now, presuming that Yeshua originally made this statement in Hebrew, which since he was a Jew, I'm just assuming that's he talked Hebrew, which, I mean, was their language. Iota would stand for the Yod, which is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So that is not, you know, some marker. That is one of the letters in their alphabet. That's the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right? Now, what about the dot? What does that mean? Well, the dot is a little projecting mark. This is the Hebrew letter bet. You see that little foot there sticking out, that little thing? That is what would be called a dot. So it's just a, it's a fraction of a letter. All right? So I think Yeshua's message is clear. It's this. Not even the smallest part of the law will be abolished until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, the law is fully intact. Every bit of it. Until heaven and earth. So heaven and earth and the law go together. All right? As long as heaven and earth exists, the law exists. The phrase, until heaven and earth pass away, refers to the duration of the whole law, the Tanakh, everything in it. So Yeshua is saying not a single item of the law, the Tanakh, will ever be changed until heaven and earth pass away. Is that what, does that sound reasonable? Is that what he's saying here? You get that? That's what it looks like he's saying. Now please notice that the word until occurs twice. And it's the first until that most people ignore. Until heaven and earth pass away. Until that happens, the law is intact. So if heaven and earth have not passed away, which most Christians don't think they have, they haven't passed away, then all of the law is still in effect. You agree with me so far? Every bit of it, all 613 commands are still in effect. Do you see a problem here? You see a problem? What's the problem? Okay, now here, let, let, me, let me do a little, uh, <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing, yeah, 613 problems, but here's the thing, as Gentiles, we were never under the law, okay, right? Let me give you a scripture here that's really misinterpreted, but I want you to understand this because it's a powerful scripture. Paul says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Now, let me say the misinterpretation of this verse has led to great misunderstanding. All right? Even, I think there's an invented doctrine that comes out of this verse. Because many see this verse as saying that God has written on the heart of every man a basic moral code. I don't believe that. Okay? And, and I depart from many theologians in that, but I don't believe you have a moral code written on your heart. Your heart is corrupted, is evil, and you're just going to do what you want to do unless you get some programming there, okay? The, they would say the code is similar to things contained in the Ten Commandments. In other words, don't steal, don't cheat, tell the truth, honor your parents. Are those written on your heart? Do you know those automatically? You know what's automatic? Kids learn how to lie somewhere. How do they learn that? You get these little babies, and they're so cute, and all of a sudden they start lying. You're like, you've been going to lying school at night. Where'd you learn that? This is not what this verse is saying. 
And the key to understanding this verse is translation. And here's the problem. You see the comma after law? That comma after law doesn't belong there. It belongs after by nature. The Greek had no punctuation, okay? So this interpreter's put in here. Most of the major translations have missed it here, which led to a faulty view of this innate knowledge of God. Everybody's got a knowledge of God. N.T. Wright says this. The phrase by nature goes with the possession of the law, not with the doing of the law. Now, do you understand that? Let's just read what's yellow as it is without the punctuation. He's for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, pause, do the thing, what the law requires. So most people read this, when the Gentiles who don't have the law, stop, by nature do the things that the law requires. In other words, they just naturally do what the law requires. No, they don't. They do not. Paul is distinguishing here between Jews who were born with Torah, the law, Gentiles who by nature or birth, they don't have the law. Yet these Gentiles, he says, are doing the things of the law. The ESVs by nature here is from the Greek word phusis. And that Paul uses this word to refer to the possession of the law is clear from his use of phusis in 2.27. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised, and the physically there is phusis, but keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. Now, when you look at verse 27, what is wrong with that? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law. What, what's wrong with that? You can't keep the law if you're physically uncircumcised, because the law demands circumcision. You're like, uh, he's physically uncircumcised, but he keeps the law. You can't do that. And this is almost identical to the point Paul makes in verse 14. Here the physically uncircumcised who keep the Torah, again, refers to Gentiles. This cannot refer to people who are naturally or innately circumcised, but to those who don't physically have the law. And in verse 14, we could translate it to those who do not physically have the law, but do the things of the law. They do what the law requires. So who are these Gentiles who are law keepers. They're Gentile Christians. Because you understand, as a Christian, you have kept the law. How? In Christ. I'm in Christ. Christ obeyed the law. I'm in Him. The law is fulfilled in us. Paul says in Romans 8, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's fulfilled in us. Because we are in Christ. Cranefield says, this view that the Gentiles are Christians is found in Augustine and in the early Latin commentary, which has come down to us. So we could translate it for when the Gentiles who do by nature not have the law, they're not even given the law, they don't know the law, they do what the law requires. These not having the law are law unto themselves. They don't have the law, but they obey the law because they've trusted Christ. And God said, in the new covenant, I'm going to put my law in their hearts. They're Christian Gentiles. They have trusted Christ. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in them. Okay. So, as Gentiles, all of us here are Gentiles. All right? Yes, you are. I don't care what you think. Okay? You're a Gentile. We're not under the law, the Torah. We never have been. But, 
Many in the church today try to put Christians under the law, right? What's one of the laws they try to stick us under? What's the top law, you would say? Wow, good job, class. Number one, they want to put us under tithe. Why, why is that number one? Uh, <laughs> yes, church, you got a tithe. I remember one night I was with the pastor. We were on a retreat, and we stayed up hours, and I was showing him from Scripture, we're not under the tithe. The tithe is Old Covenant. The tithe is Israel. Israel... Tithing was for the theocracy. Israel was a government run by the priests, okay? So the, it was basically taxation because it went to support the priests to take care of who ran the government, all right? So we talked into the night, and he goes, yeah, okay, you're right, I agree. And then about two weeks later, he's preaching tithing again. And I said, what happened? He goes, it just works. <laughs> and it does work because people, I mean, they, you see some verses, man, Wow. They teach that believers are commanded to tithe. That's give your 10%. And if you don't do it, I heard a radio preacher say, I have doubts that a person who does not tithe is a Christian. He also said, one who does not tithe is under the condemnation of God. You've heard that you're a bunch of God robbers, right? Listen, if we were under the law, he is somewhat right. I say somewhat because the Tanakh actually teaches three tithes. Two yearly tithes, one tithes every third year, so it's like 23.5%. Kind of like our taxation. Amazing, huh? All right? So the Bible doesn't teach tithes. The Bible teaches for Christians, for believers, free will giving. What should you give? What you want to. How has God blessed you? Cheerfully. All those things. In other words, people go, I don't know what to do, though. Then give 11 or 9, don't give 10, okay? Because <laughs> you don't want to be under the law, all right? <laughs> Oh, it's just amazing. They want to put you under these certain laws but because they want to control you. And then you get these distinctions and Christians can't figure out, what do I have to do over here? And What's in the New Testament? What's in the Old? Listen, the Old Covenant is gone. If heaven and earth refer to the literal heaven and earth, that would mean the law is still in effect for Jews. It's never for us, right? Well, what is the problem with that? Okay, if the law is still in effect today for Jews, what problem does that cause? Huh? You can't sacrifice. There's a big problem here we're missing. There are no Jews today. Racial Jews, there are none. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I gave you reference after reference after reference. You know, from genealogical tests, there are no Jews. They've been so intermixed, so mixed up, there's no one to come forward and say, my pure bloodline goes back to the tribe of Levi. You can't do that, all right? So, there are no racial Jews. That would cause a problem, right? <laughs> to keep the law, all right? Secondly, because there's no racial Jews, there's no priesthood, right? Without a priesthood, you can't offer sacrifices. And according to the law, if you've sinned, what do you got to do? You got to sacrifice. Now, here's, here, let me make a little distinction here that I don't think people get. Numbers 15, 22, 25. If you sin, what? What's it say? Unintentionally. The sacrificial system was for those who sinned unintentionally. It wasn't for the rebellious who just, I'm going to do what I want to do. No. This is for the unintentional sin. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that Yahweh has spoken to Moses, all that Yahweh has commanded you by Moses, from the day that Yahweh gave commandments, the 613 of them, you obey all of them, 
and onward throughout your generations, then it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation. All the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering. Okay, you sin unintentionally, let's bring a burnt offering. A pleasing aroma to Yahweh with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the rule, one male goat for a sin offering. Here's the you sin, we're going to offer a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for the congregation of the people of Israel. So you've got to have a priest to do this atoning work. All right. He goes on. He shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. Again, they keep stressing this unintentional mistake. You didn't do it on purpose. They have brought their offering, a food offering to Yahweh, and their sin offering before Yahweh for their mistake. Now let me ask you this. When is the last time that an Israelite offered a burnt offering to Yahweh? It was prior to 70 A.D. Because in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. Since then, no one in Judaism has sacrificed an animal. After that, they redeveloped the system and went on with it, but it doesn't fit the Torah at all anymore. Okay? It doesn't fit at all. All sacrifices ended with the destruction of the temple. Let's say that someone today wanted to keep the Jewish law. They get in the Bible, start reading, yeah, I like this stuff. Let's do this. I got an animal for the sacrifice. Where do they find a priest? <laughs> Numbers 3, 5 through 7. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. The Levitical priests were a special class of qualified ministering priests chosen from among the tribe of Levi. If you can't find a Levitical priest, you can't keep the law. All right? Look at Nehemiah 7.64. These sought their, excuse me, their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies. But it was not found. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Why were they? They, they might have been Levites. They couldn't prove it. No genealogical record. They're excluded. You're unclean. It was of immeasurable importance that an Aaronic priest be able to demonstrate that his mother and his father were Israelites of the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. That's essential. They can't, nobody can do that today. All right, nobody. Let's look at Numbers 1640. To be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider, all right, who is not of the descendants of Aaron, if you're not part of that tribe, you're an outsider, shall draw near to burn incense before Yahweh, lest he become like Korah. What happened to Korah? The ground opened up and he swallowed him right up, okay, and it closed up after him. All right, that's God think, how he thinks about Korah as Yahweh said to them through Moses. See, without a priesthood, the temple would be useless and pointless. No genealogical records equals no priesthood equals no priesthood equals no temple. No temple equals no sacrifice. The whole system goes together. Look at Hebrews 7.11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, if it could have been, it would have been, but... Now watch what he, I just want you to catch the parenthetical mark here. For under it the people received the law. Now, that's a reminder of the close interdependence 
between the priestly and the legal systems. Under it is literally on the basis of it. The law and the priesthood belong together for the simple reason that since the law representing the divinely ordained standard of conduct and character was usually broken, okay? People broke the law. So there was a continuous necessity for the ministry of reconciliation which the Levitical priesthood provided, even though imperfectly. The writer is saying that the Mosaic law was given in order to validate the Levitical priesthood. If the Levitical priesthood is taken out of the Mosaic law, nothing of meaning is left. Why is that? It's because the whole purpose of having a religious system is to bring the people into a personal relationship with Yahweh. And if there's no priest to represent the people, there's no reason to have a religious system. You can't bring them into that relationship. There's no one to sacrifice. It's very important that we understand that what the writer is communicating in this verse is the concept is that the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law are inseparable. They go together. You can't have one without the other. If someone wanted to incorporate the Mosaic law into their religious system today, they would also have to incorporate the Levitical priesthood because it was the basis for the Mosaic law. So if there's no Levitical priesthood today, and there is not, okay, there's not even any Jews today, okay, then the law cannot be obeyed today. Are you following me? So we can't keep the law. Nobody can keep the law today. So is every jot and tittle still in effect? So the law's not here. That must mean that heaven and earth passed away. They're together. The law goes with heaven and earth. If the law's not being kept, because it doesn't need to be kept, there's no more heaven and earth. Heaven and earth will pass away. If you take heaven and earth in a literal sense, then the law would still be in effect. But the law is not in effect. It cannot be in effect today. So here's our dilemma. Either Yeshua was wrong about heaven and earth being connected with the law, or, give you a better choice, heaven and earth are not to be taken in a literal sense. Which one of those are you more comfortable with? Let's, you know, we, we know Yeshua is not wrong. That's not an option, all right? So maybe this is not literal. See, if you're familiar with the Tanakh, as Brown said, you're going to understand this is not literal language. If you want to know what a term means in the New Testament in relation to prophecy, you need to go back to the Tanakh and find out what it meant there. If it was used a certain way in the Tanakh, it makes sense that Yeshua would use it in the New Testament the same way it was used back there. We need to get our understanding of heaven and earth, not from our dictionaries, not from our commentaries, not from our own ideas. We need to get it from the Scripture, the Tanakh, where the Jews got it. Deuteronomy 31, 30 through 32, 1. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished. In the ears of all the assembly of Israel. This is Moses' song. Who is it directed to? Israel, okay, this is to Israel. Now watch what he says. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Now, in this song, God is speaking to Israel. He calls them, O heavens and O earth. He's not speaking to the physical heavens. He just said, give ear in the ears of all the assembly. This is words to be spoken to. And he calls Israel heaven and earth. Notice what he says to them. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, 
and sets on fire the foundation of the mountains. God is not talking here about burning up the physical earth. God is using apocalyptic, symbolic language to warn Israel of a coming judgment that he's going to bring on them. That's who he's talking to. When Israel's finally destroyed, guess what? It's going to be like heaven and earth were destroyed, burned up, because they are. They're gone. In biblical apocalyptic language, heaven refers, often refers to governments and rulers. Earth refers to the nation of people. I think we can see this in Isaiah, Isaiah 1, 1 and 2. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, this is about Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, bless you, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. So he's talking to Israel, and he says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. For Yahweh has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they rebelled against me. So here Israel is called heaven and earth. Drop down to verse 10. Still talking to Israel, he says this, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, Yahweh's still talking to Israel. It hasn't changed the scene here, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, literal Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed for some time. But he's referring to the rulers using this symbology because they're going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah because of their disobedience. So we see that rulers used for heavens in verse 2 and people used for earth. So the terms heaven and earth are used to speak of rulers and people of a nation. Isaiah 51, 13 through 16 says, And have forgotten Yahweh, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. Okay, God did that, right? Is that talking about the literal heavens and earth? Well, let's keep reading. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea. Now, in Hebrew, that would, I think, better be translated, who divides the sea. Now, you know when that happened, right? So that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. Now, watch what he says establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth and saying to Zion, you're my people. The time of this establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth is referred to here as when he divided the sea, when he put his words in their mouth. What's that talking about? He's talking about the exodus here. All right? God divided the sea, brought his people to, and then he took his words and he put them in their mouth and he said, you're my people. This is when he took them out of Israel, I mean, Israel out of Egypt. He formed them in the wilderness into a covenant nation. He planted the heavens and he laid the foundation of the earth. That is, he brought forth order and government when he established Israel. Now, if the destruction of the heaven and earth were to be taken literally in all the passages in the Tanakh, it would mean that heaven and earth were destroyed a whole bunch of times. This language is clearly not literal. It's figurative. It's apocalyptic. Gary DeMar, in 1996, said, and I say that because he might have changed now, 1996 said this, 
Jesus does not change subjects when he assures his disciples that heaven and earth will pass away. Rather, he merely affirms his prior predictions, which are recorded in Matthew 24, 29, 31. Verse 36 is a summary of the confirmation statement of these verses. Keep in mind that the central focus of the Olivet Discourse is the desolation of the house and world of apostate Israel. That's what he's talking about. The old world of Judaism, represented by the earthly temple, is taken apart stone by stone. James Jordan writes this. Each time God brought judgment on his people during the old covenant, there was a sense in which an old heavens and earth was replaced with a new one. New rulers were set up, a new symbolic world model built, tabernacle, temple, and so forth. The new covenant replaces the old covenant with new leaders, a new priesthood, new sacraments, new sacrifice, a new tabernacle, and a new temple. In essence, a new heavens and earth. The darkening of the sun and moon, the falling of the stars, coupled with the shaking of the heavens, are more descriptive ways of saying that heaven and earth will pass away. In other contexts where the stars fall, they fall to earth, a sure sign of temporal judgment. So then, the passing away of heaven and earth is the passing away of the old covenant world of Judaism. The Hebrew people understood this kind of language. And he's the people they are talking, that's the people he is talking to. So in Matthew 24, 35, Yeshua is take, talking about the passing away of Israel when he speaks of heaven and earth. Again, this whole context of Matthew 24 is about that. The whole chapter. The destruction and the passing away of the nation Israel. That's what it's all about. Nowhere do the scriptures teach that the physical creation will be destroyed. But everybody believes that. Right? Notice what God said after the flood in Noah's day. Genesis 8, 21. When Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Noah got off the ark, offered sacrifice, he smells the aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Can you say amen to that? Yeah, amen, okay. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Now, folks will say, well, the Lord destroyed the earth the first time by water. He drowned everybody. And so what he's saying here is, don't worry, take comfort, I won't drown you again, I'll burn you. Does that sound comforting at all? Is God just saying, I'm going to change the method of destroying everything? How is there any comfort if you get destroyed by fire? I think I'd choose water than being burned. Or is he promising not to destroy the earth again? That's what he's saying. I will never again curse the ground for man. I'm not going to do it. All right? Now, some of you who are familiar with your Tanakh might wonder about Psalm 102. That sounds like it predicts the destruction of the physical planet. Let's look at it. Psalm 102, 25 through 28. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So he says here, the earth and the heavens, they're going to perish. Right? 
But what heavens and earth is he talking about? Is he talking about the physical heavens? Well, this is a prophecy of David, and you can just read this and say, see, God made the earth, it's going to burn it all, it's going to destroy it all. As always, the New Testament gives us insight and illumination into the Tanakh. Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews quotes this prophecy word for word. 10 and 12, 10 through 12. He says, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands, they'll perish, you'll remain, they'll all wear like a garment, like a robe, they'll roll up like a garment, they'll be changed, but you're the same, your years will have no end, okay? So they're going to perish. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the fulfillment of these related to the establishment of the eternal kingdom of Christ. See, if we back up some verses here, he's talking about Christ's kingdom, and he says this, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hmm. Okay? It's forever and ever. And the, the scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter, the scep- uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, you hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So the heavens and the earth, the old covenant Israel, would perish, but Christ and his throne would remain. And we have to, people, we have to understand when that old order of the old covenant passed away and the new started, Christ's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So how long do you think it'll last? Can you understand an, an everlasting kingdom having last days or end times? How could it have end times? There's no end to it. Okay, so there is no end times to Christ's kingdom. How is the world or heaven and earth of old going to perish? Well, David says they'll wax old like a garment, and then they will be changed. You think it's just a coincidence that the Bible speaks of the passing away of the old covenant using this exact same language? That gives us a little clue that I don't think he's talking about the physical earth. Look at Hebrews 8.13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, that'd be the old covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now listen, this is written, let's say around 65, 66. So just a few more years and what happened? It's gone. The old covenant is gone. But look what he says. In other words, he is saying right here, the law is still in effect. All right? He's speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first obsolete. What is becoming obsolete, it's not obsolete yet. They're still sacrificing. They're still going to temple. The priests are still there. Everything's still going on. What is becoming obsolete, and it's growing old, it's ready to, it hasn't vanished. Just a few more years, and it's going to vanish. The same Greek word, peleao, is translated wear out in Hebrews 1.11. So he's using the same words. And becoming obsolete in 8.13. The writer here says that the old covenant is about to pass away. In just a few years, it did. But the law was still in effect until heaven and earth passed away. And when heaven and earth passed away, why is the law not in effect anymore? There's no temple. There's no priesthood. There's no nothing. It's done. Boom. No more sacrifices. No more priesthood. Yeshua predicted the end of the Jewish age in Matthew 24. He said it would happen in his generation David said the heaven and earth would perish, but Christ would remain. This is exactly what Christ taught in Matthew 24, 35. People, the Bible 
does not speak of the end of time. The expression, the end time, or the time of the end, is found in Scripture. But nowhere in the Bible can we find the expression, the end of time. You understand the distinction there? I should have put this on the screen so you could see it, because the expression, the end time, or the time of the end, speaks of the end of an age. But the end of the age is not the end of time. Scripture doesn't indicate that God has any plan to destroy the creator world that we enjoy. He just People, well, what's this going to go on and on? Well, do you have a problem with that? You're going somewhere. You're leaving at death. You go to be with the Lord. And this, why can't this keep going? Some people have argued, well, because there's a, fa- there's a certain number of the elect. Once all the elect get saved, it all ends. Really? How, how, long is, how large is that number? How long does it go on? Huh? Look at Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky, there's the heaven and earth, fled away and no place was found for him. The word presence here is used in Scripture to denote the arrival or full presence of a person. The old covenant age fled from the face of Christ at his parousia because he came in judgment and he destroyed it, he wiped it out. Well, what was to happen when the old heaven and earth passed away? Well, our text in Matthew 24, 35 doesn't really tell us anything, but Peter gives us some insight. He says, according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hang on to that. Righteousness dwells in the new covenant. All right? Now, he says, according to his promise. Where's this promise about the new heaven and the new earth? Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former things, the old heaven and old earth, shall not be remembered or come to mind. This prophecy had to be fulfilled before the law could pass away. Because this is part of it. The new heavens and new earth. Part of the Tanakh. Part of the promises. So we get this fulfilled, the old passes away. Until God created a new heaven and earth, the old covenant remained in attack every bit of it. And there's a lot of people who don't believe in a transition period. Oh, I don't think... I don't know how they get around it from Scripture, okay? Hebrews 8.13. So it's growing old. It's ready to pass away, but it didn't. Now, a couple of verses earlier in this text, Yahweh says to Israel in verse 65.15, You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord Yahweh will put you to death. He's talking to Israel here. But to his servants... He'll call by another name. Okay? He'll put you to death. Isaiah said that in order to inaugurate, this is right before the verses of the new heavens and new earth, God was going to slay His old people. Now, if the church is currently the people of God who are waiting for a new heaven and new earth, as most of the church teaches, who is God going to slay to bring in the new heavens and new earth? His church? That doesn't work out too good, does it? But he says he's got to slay them before he brings the new heaven and earth. Peter doesn't tell us much about the new heaven and new earth, except that it's a place where righteousness dwells. You know what? That's exactly what the Bible says about the new covenant. Look what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 3.9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. He's comparing old and new covenant. The Old Covenant was a ministry of condemnation. Why is that? You were always condemned. You always were doing something wrong, okay? 
Now we have a ministry of righteousness. And if you want to know more about the new heavens and new earth, you have to look what John has to say in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth, that's the old one, had passed away, and there was no more sea. The first one's gone. Here we see what happens when the old heaven and earth are destroyed. We get a new one, a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down on the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So we got a holy city that's prepared as a bride. Now, who is this bride and what is this city? Well, verse 9 tells us who the bride is. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he said, Come on, I want to show you the Lamb's wife. And we know from Ephesians 5 that the bride is the church. The bride of Christ is the totality of God's elect. Now watch what he says. He says, Come, I want to show you the bride. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city. Wait a minute, I thought you were going to show me a bride. Why are you showing me a city? That city's not a bride, is it? Coming down out of heaven from God. Yes, it is. The wife of the Lamb is the new Jerusalem, which is the church. The old Jerusalem was physical Israel. The new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, the church. The old city was destroyed. The new city that takes its place is a city in which the bride of Yeshua is the church. 22, or 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city. Oh, we're in trouble. Where do we go to worship? For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple. Why? Because the temple represents the presence of God. In the New Jerusalem, we are in the presence of God. We don't need a temple. All right? Right now, we're in the presence of God. You know, people say, we're in a sanctuary. We are the sanctuary. This is the sanctuary. This is the dwelling place of God. All right, he dwells in us. Look at 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You know, people read this in Revelation. They, oh, I can't wait for that to happen. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Quit waiting for what you have. How, that, to me, is, is such a sad thing. Sitting around waiting for what you already have. That's the new covenant. That's the promise of God. This is what he's saying in the new covenant. The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. This age in which we now live is the new covenant age. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. 21-24 says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The saved of the nations, they walk by the light of this holy city. We are the light of the world, people. That's what the Lord said. We're a city that's set on a hill. Look at 21, 25, and 26. Its gates will never be shut. What's that mean? By day, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. What's he mean? It will never be shut. Well, Isaiah 60, 11 says, Your gates shall be opened continually day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. We see here the reason the gates are never shut, that men may bring the wealth of the Gentiles into the city. This is a reference to the power of the gospel, people. The gospel, bringing people into the kingdom. The next verse tells us that only the elect will enter, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. You go, well, I don't get in then. No, 
This is talking about your position, not your practice, okay? Your righteousness is in Christ. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the last book of life, okay? Only his elect. So what he's saying here is salvation is always available. The gates of the city are always open. Look at chapter 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life. You're familiar with that water if you go back to Ezekiel, okay? This is, this is the Spirit coming. This is the water giving life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, of the Lamb through the middle of the street in the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The nations are being healed as the gospel goes forth. And the river of life forth, flows forth from the temple to the world. The tree of life is there and there's healing. The river of the water of life was predicted in Ezekiel 47. Right? Remember Ezekiel 47? Where did the water come from? Where did it start? It started in the temple. And it flowed out of the temple, right? Well, what's the temple today? We are the temple of God. So the water is coming forth from us. We are the temple of the living God. We are carrying the gospel. We're the dwelling place of God. This river comes forth from the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22, which is the church, which is the bride of Christ. So we're to be involved in taking the water of life to the nations. That's our calling. What is this water of life? Look at Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride, we're the bride. Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come on. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. People, this is a call to salvation. In the new heavens and the new earth, we're supposed to be the eternal state. Okay, most futurists view Revelation 21 and 22 as the eternal state, meaning the earth is all gone, everything's burned up, we're in a new, we're, we're with God now, and the earth is gone, and this is the eternal, so we go on forever with God, alright? Who are we preaching the gospel to? I mean, I'm scratching my head saying, a call to salvation, who are we preaching it to, if this is the eternal state? And here's another question, if this is the eternal state, why are there evil men here? Evil men in the eternal state? Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates outside. What's outside? Dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside what? Outside the city of Jerusalem, which is what? The church. Outside of the New Covenant, there's dogs. There's sorcerers. There's sexually immoral murders. And most of them are in D.C. I couldn't resist, people. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, people, are now living in the new heaven and earth. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. Yeshua the Christ. His Father and the Spirit are among us. And we don't need a temple. We don't need any of the rituals and ceremonies of the old heaven and earth because we are in God's presence. For them, they didn't have that. They took the sacrifice to the temple hoping it was acceptable and hoping God wouldn't kill them. 
because they wanted a few minutes of fellowship with the Lord, so they took their sacrifice there, whereas we just constantly in the presence of God. We can talk to Him anytime, walk with Him in every situation, seek advice at any time, enjoy His fellowship continually. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in 1865, said this, Did you ever regret the absence of the burnt offering? Speaking to Christians, did you ever regret that? I never offered one, so no, I never really missed it. Or the red heifer? Or any one of the sacrifices and rites of the Jews? Did you ever pine for the Feast of Tabernacles? Or dedication? No. Because though these were like the old heavens and earth to the Jewish believers, they have passed away. And we now live under the new heavens and a new earth. As far as the dispensation of divine teaching is concerned, the substance is come the shadow has gone, and we don't remember it. People, you understand the difference between a shadow and a substance? When I was at sea, Kathy would send me pictures, and the whole top of the person above me's bunk was lined with these pictures, so I'd lay in my bed, I could see all these pictures. And man, I just longed for the day that there were a shadow. There was a picture, a shadow. When I got home, I didn't get in bed and lay up and look at those pictures anymore, okay? Because she was laying right next to me. The, the reality had come. I don't need the shadow anymore. We're living in the new covenant in the presence of God. The shadows have faded away. The reality is here. The old heavens and old earth of Jerusalem are gone. We live in the new heaven and new earth. It's just a new, another name for the new covenant, people. And I pray that God would help us fully understand and appreciate our position in the new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells and where God dwells with his people. What a privilege. What an honor we have. It's also accountability, people. God's always there, okay? Always with us. I pray that we use it as an opportunity for fellowship. To just dwell in his presence. To be a light. But people, right now, in this new covenant, let me remind you, the gospel's still going forth, okay? We are the temple. We're the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. From the temple should go the water of life. When you have opportunities to share the good news, we need to be sharing it. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, it's exciting. I'm excited. Thank you, Father, for what we have in you. Oh, I, Lord, it's sad that futurism so pushes things off to some other day. The joys, the blessings that are ours now are being looked for instead of enjoyed. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to the truth. Help us to be faithful, Lord, in sharing the water of life, in inviting people to come and take the water of life free. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. Questions, comments? Cheryl. Okay. That question, that question comes well that question comes up a lot. There's no longer any C. C can mean a couple of things, all right? C uh, in scripture oftentimes refers to Gentiles. Okay, so it could be saying there's no Gentiles. In other words, we're all the people of God. The Gentiles were not the people of God, the Jews were the people of God. So there's no more, but also the C represents chaos. Okay? Always represented chaos. The sea monsters, the, the sea is chaos. The Jews were afraid to death of the sea. They didn't want to be near the sea. It was the key to the underworld. That's where chaos is. So there's no more chaos in the new covenant. Okay? God has brought peace to his people.
Yes. Uh, though we're not under the law, um, do you find, like, what kind of merit would we have to learn about the law now? Like, so reading Deuteronomy numbers okay. and things good, like that. Good question. Now, the last two weeks I've been talking about this. I've been talking about the importance of understanding Scripture, and I've been stressing the fact we have to know the first three quarters of our Bible if we're going to understand the New Testament. So, yes. I encourage our people to read through the whole Bible every year. We need to understand those things, okay? Because a lot of those just share the mind and heart of God, what God wants. All right, a lot of those commandments uh, uh, say we're not under them. Christians say, can I get a tattoo? Well, you're in the new covenant. You can do that if you want, okay? That's up to you. And, you know, it's not a spiritual thing. But there's other laws in there that where God is just kind of sharing his heart. Like he doesn't want us to be adulterers or fornicators. Now, those are brought in the New Testament, now, there's two views on this that, that people hold. Repealed, people, two R's. Repealed unless repeated. In other words, the Old Testament is all gone unless it's repeated in the New Testament. All right? I would hold to that view. Then others would say it's mandatory unless it's been modified. No, the Old Covenant passed away. Okay? You can't decide, well, which ones do I have to keep and which ones don't. In Christ, I have fulfilled the law. Completely. Romans 8, 1 through 4. The law has been fulfilled in me. The righteous, Romans 8, 4. The righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in us. So everything it demanded, we've done. We're righteous because we're in Christ. Now, are you talking about as far as living or just understanding? Just understanding. Okay. Yeah, I think we, I think we understand the whole Bible. Okay. We need to get in there and we need to learn this because this is what was going on. We can understand more our appreciation of who we are and what we have today when we understand. And listen, Christ said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he says, and they are those that speak of me. The whole scripture speaks of Christ. That whole Tanakh is pointing to Christ. So yeah, we should know it because he is the sacrifice. Okay? He's the lamb. He's the sacrifice. Man, we get such a great understanding in the New Testament when we get to understand all that system. Because it all pointed to Christ. That's what it was all about. Are there new commandments there? Are there new commandments? You mean, besides those ones that were there? Yes. No, the Lord reinstituted all ten of the commandments, <laughs> except one. Which one did he not reiterate? Seven. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why didn't he, why did he bring in all the rest of them, all the other ones Christ repeated? Why didn't he bring that one in? Because he is our Sabbath rest. He's the Sabbath. He's the rest. We rest in Him. Okay? And that's the picture there. All right? So, yes, so the, I don't know that there's any new, you know, anything new. Like I said, He brought in those ten. He talked about the law of Christ. He stressed love, but that wasn't new. You know? That's not a new commandment. We were taught to love all through, you know, the Tanakh teaches that love. So, I don't know of anything specifically that is new as far as commandment that is taught in the New Testament. The only thing... I think, and some people disagree with me here, because some people think that there's nothing taught in the New Testament that wasn't taught in the Old. I think there's one thing, and that's that the Jews and Gentiles were one body in Christ. That's the mystery that Paul taught. Mm -hmm. Only thing I think he teaches, and that's what Paul said, I teach nothing but the Tanakh. He's talking about the resurrection. I don't teach anything, but the Bible taught this, and you got to know it, okay? But one thing, when he comes to Ephesians, he talks about the mystery Jews and Gen Gentiles in the same body? I think that's something new. 
Gary? Sort of to his question, uh, you're talking about the importance of the Old Testament. You stated last week that it's all one book. It's not to be divided or separated. It's right. We can't book. slice it and dice it. And here's what some people do. You got the moral law, you got the ceremonial law, you got the civil law. Those are arbitrary distinctions that are not made in the Bible. And here's the problem they can't decide which are which. So <laughs> it's kind of difficult. Okay. Gary? Sort of to um, a point in your message somewhere, I can't remember now, but you're talking about the uh, ceremonial about bringing back the sacrifices and stuff like that. People, all of us, I think, less so in this congregation perhaps, but um, in general, Christians don't regard the word of law as precise. I mean, there was no, um, you can't just arbitrarily pick up incense and, and um, sacrifice to, to God. Even in that day, you couldn't arbitrarily do it. And they just don't think that God means what he says. King Uzziah did it. Yeah. What happened to him? Got leprosy and died of leprosy. Yeah. Okay? Because God, he was a king, he was a great king, a mighty king, but he just took a place that he shouldn't have been, you know? All right, from our viewing audience, Mike Sullivan says, what is the veil that covers the nations in Isaiah 25, 6, and 7? And then he answers the question. Thanks for helping me out, Mike. I appreciate it. He <laughs> yeah. said, it's the old covenant law. And the old covenant law was the veil. Yeah. They couldn't see. They were under that. Thanks, Mike. Okay, well, we've got some questions here. Hang on. i got to not have you ask a question while I'm trying to read this because I'm not listening to you. and I, I tried to do that, but I'm not good at doing two things at once, okay? so Bob says, Josephus and Philo both saw the temple as a symbolic microcosm of the cosmos. Right, I understand that. This is how the Jews viewed their temple. So it makes sense that its destruction was understood in terms of the heaven and earth. Good point, good point, Bob. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, is Satan or the adversary bound outside the gates? Do we still battle with evil? <laughs> we battle with evil, okay, but not with satanic evil. I believe that Satan was destroyed in AD 70, okay, that was part of the stars falling from the sky. We did that a couple sections back. The stars represented gods. He was one of the gods. He was a god over Rome. He was destroyed. I believe the demons were destroyed with him. I know there's a lot of difference of opinion on this, but listen, let me tell you, I believe the gifts ended in AD 70, the spiritual gifts, okay? One of the gifts was powers, and that gift of powers was to battle demons. So if the gifts ended, then we're powerless to fight these demonic things anymore, okay? But I think that all ended because there was a wiping out of the old covenant, and the battle was going on between the covenants. Once the old was put away, we're not fighting Satan. We're not fighting demons. I've been a Christian for 50 years, okay? And I don't, I never saw Satan. I never had a problem with them. You know, I mean, I, well, I should take that back. I had a little problem when I, you know, read some of these books back in the day when, you know, and it was, they had Satan behind every bush and under every tree and, you know, so you see demons everywhere, but, you know. I think people, you know, people say, well, how, how can we do bad things? The heart of man is evil. We read that today, right? James said, everyone is drawn away of his own lust 
and entice. We don't need Satan to make us evil. We're battling evil, but the evil I battle is within my breast. And it makes me sick, you know? Sometimes I'll act like a total jerk and my wife will confront me, and, you know, and I'm like, you can at least leave the room. I'm stuck with me. I can't go anywhere. i got to deal with this thing, but it's a battle, and it rages on. And sometimes you're better than others. And some of us have more evil to deal with than others. <laughs> but it's there, people. It's there. So, yes, we, we battle evil. It's, it's an ongoing, ongoing battle. Hang on, hang on. Preachers uh, in the olden days didn't uh, have to deal with this. I know. So he says, <laughs> the, 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 the listener writes in, so there are no prophets either since Christ has already come. Yes, that's true. Prophecy ended. Okay? And see, if there was prophets today, when mm-hmm. prophets spoke, they spoke for God. They had been in the presence of God. The, all the prophets of the Old Covenant had met with God in the divine council. They had been in his council. The Bible talks about that. They spoke for God. If what they said didn't come true, what happened? They killed him. Deuteronomy 18, read it. They put him to death. If a prophet says something that doesn't come true, you kill him. He's not from me. God didn't make mistakes, okay? If there was a prophet today, we'd have to find out what he said. We'd have to write it down. We'd have to add it to the Bible. The Bible's closed. We don't. We have this, and believe me, this is all we need. If they say what's in here, we already got this. We don't need them. If they say what's not in here, we need a stone. Okay, so that that's kind of the end of it. So no, we don't need prophets today. We have the canon is closed. We have so much more with the Word of God because we're not going to forget what He said because it's written down. We can go to it and examine it, and study it, and read it. Anthony, you had a question. Um. Yeah, um, when you was giving the illustration of Brooklyn, the city got photos beside your bed, Captain you know, and when you went home, you didn't have to worry about the shower because you was with her. Right, exactly. Side by side. Right. So the reality. And when you and when you was speaking, there might be two different things, but then just came to me too when we had the temple, right? And flowing waters. So when we pass away, when we go see the Lord, you know, we literally die. Right. And go ahead. Uh, so what happened to our waters? We just be with Him. Explain that to me. Well, the water is just symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Okay. okay. We have the Spirit. So the gospel's coming forth to us. The gospel's. You go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks a lot about the water, cleansing of the nations. The water is that cleansing. You know, in John uh, seven, he connects the water and the Spirit. They're, they're together, so that's symbolic language. So when we die, hopefully someone else picks it up and keeps on preaching the gospel. But that's, that, I just want us to understand that we are called, and I think sometimes we get slack on this, but you know, there's still people today that need the gospel, okay? And you might think, oh, they'll never listen. Listen, you'd have thought that of me. You wouldn't have shared with me, okay? Because you thought God would never do anything with him. My uncle just passed away two weeks ago. He was, he'd have been 92 in December. And I remember after I became a Christian, because he lived with us for a while, so he knew me pretty well. And after I became a Christian, every time he talked about it, he would just break down and cry. He says, when I think of what God did for you, he goes, it is just, you know. So don't write somebody off because you think they're beyond the scope of God. I mean, Paul was running around killing Christians, okay? 
and he became one, and God can change anybody's heart. So just be, and I'm not saying go door to door and bang on, no, I don't believe, I believe in lifestyle evangelism. You know, as you go, preach the gospel, okay? When I was a Baptist, we used to go every door to door. I'd be walking up to the door, the Jehovah Witnesses would be walking down from the door. We're next! <laughs> you know, it gets confusing, people. If you don't know someone, they, why would they listen to what you have to say? But the people you work with, the people in your neighborhood, you know, the people you, you come in contact with, and you have an opportunity to share, man, let's... Let's use it. That's Let's... harder than going door to door. Well, that's door much... to door, you can put on your best That's behavior. right, and you can walk away and don't have to worry about it. You know? So even the heritage, as far as for your children, is teaching them about the Lord. Teach them about the Lord. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. 